me again to this cast. We have another really interesting discussion today, I hope, uh, with an interesting guest, Michael Schellenberger, who's written the new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, <laughs> which is an aggressive title, but it's also a really interesting book and a discussion of where we are in major American cities, especially on the West Coast, where we're obviously seeing quite horrifying, at least to me, scenes of homelessness, crime, shoplifting, just a sense of urban collapse in some parts of these big cities. And I, I notice it also happening to some extent in other cities. I, you can feel here in D.C. that the, the, the general sense of crime is definitely up, general sense of fear and insecurity. There are, there are tent camps just across the street from me where I'm in the studio, which never existed before. The plaza right in the middle of my neighborhood, Adams Morgan, now has several tents in it with people living. And it's a confusing place. Where have we, where have we gone? What are the roots of it? And that's what Michael Schellenberg is trying to get at in this book. So thank you, Michael, for, for joining us. And, and tell, tell me, first of all, where did you grow up? I grew up in Greeley, Colorado, which is about an hour northeast of Denver and Boulder on the plains. It's a famous for having one of the largest meatpacking facilities in the country. Pretty conservative, mid-sized town. What do your parents do? My father uh, was a community college professor of psychology, mm. and my and so was my stepmother. And then my my mother and my stepfather were uh, public school teachers. Wow. So what would you say was the most influential thing in your childhood and adolescence in, in forge, forging you as an adult? Mm. I mean, I would definitely say my parents' divorce and being hit by a truck and almost killed around the exact same time had a big impact Whoa. on me. How old were you then? Yeah. I was eight years old. Oof. And so I knew that no one had to give me lectures about why life was precious you know, I knew it was, and I wanted to make something of it and was an ambitious kid. My parents' divorce, you know, was a difficult event, like for a lot of kids. So that was probably it. And then, you know, but nine years later, I was going to Sandinista, Nicaragua, living out a, a, a messianic complex. <laughs> okay, let's, let's take this step by step. So you're this um, nice boy from Colorado who's had a horrible early life experience and how do you get to Nicaragua to support the Sandinistas? Uh, explain that trajectory to me. Well, my father was much more radical left, grew up talking to us about Noam Chomsky, someone I read very early on, you know, the famous American anarchist and linguist at MIT. My mother was more probably conventional FDR Democrat, but I definitely had, you know, I was a bright boy and, and strongly encouraged. I was bored by my hometown, which was very conservative, and even though I was, you know, radical left before I even knew what that meant, just almost instinctively, intuitively. And because of your parents, you think? Because of your parents? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Part yeah. of it. Um, you know, and Central America was where it was at in the eighties. I mean, that it was. It was if I was in you New know, York that and they and fighting AIDS, but in terms of kind of big left wing causes. That in South Africa, that's where the adventure was. So what did you do in Nicaragua and how did you go there? 
Well, they had, you know, the left had organized these really sweet little schools in Nicaragua. You know, it's in the middle of a civil war, but it was actually pretty safe in much of Nicaragua, mm-hmm. much safer than it is now since so much of the drug trade has moved through there. But just a sleepy, it was kind of what it was, a sleepy, you know, farm economy, pre almost pre-industrial, you know, with a kind of feudal aristocratic overlay. Studied Spanish and then traveled through Honduras and Guatemala and Mexico with a couple of older boys, you know, learned some Spanish, you know, saw, you know, inter- tons of meetings and interviews. It was really quite a lovely experience. I contrasted, I wrote an essay a few weeks ago, or a few months ago now called Why I'm Not a Progressive where I talk about, you know, part of, you know, what changed for me, I think, or what I see changed on the left is that, you know, in the 80s, we had this idea of heroic left-wing figures, you know, Latin American socialists or Nelson Mandela, certainly King and Gandhi. And now it's just so victim-oriented that almost that stuff's almost all gone. But that was a real attraction to me, the sense of adventure, but also a sense of being part of something bigger than myself. So. You were a bit of a red diaper baby, as they used to call them. <laughs> and how well, how old were you when you were in Nicaragua? And, seventeen. And this, seventeen. Okay, so you're doing you're doing the sort of run around the globe thing in your early teens. Then what happens to you? Well, so I mean, the other thing is they weren't really red. You know, my parents weren't really communists, but they were they were both from the Mennonite religious tradition, which is a kind wow. of radical Protestant. It's called Anabaptist because they're so they're more Protestant than anybody, and they really yep. reject the state in a bunch of ways. Eisenhower was raised as a Mennonite and embraced and rejected the pacifism to join the military. I also rejected pacifism, you know, and came to believe that some amount of self defense is necessary. But that was more their orientation. It was very pacifist, very. But there was a kind of alternative. You know, they had a different way of seeing the world. I went to a Quaker school in Indiana called Earlham. Mm-hmm. And then after I graduated, I went to San Francisco and worked with a very left organization called Global Exchange, which was famous for bringing Americans to Cuba in violation of the travel ban. And I spent, you know, I basically interviewed or spent time with all the major figures of the Latin American left, like I met Daniel Ortega, did some work for Hugo Chavez, did an wow. interview with Lula before he was elected president, like 10 years wow. before he was elected president. So definitely ran in those circles and then just started doing kind of you know publicity campaigns for various left-wing nonprofits after college and then decided to focus on climate change around 2000 and really was focused on the environment until 2020 when my book on the environment came out, Apocalypse Never, at which point I kind of went back to some of the stuff I had done in the 90s, which included advocating for drug decriminalization, needle exchange, a lot of stuff with Soros-funded charities, medical marijuana, you know, where I had an understanding of where we were headed and when we saw, and then I went out of it. And then by 2017, when overdoses reached 70,000 in the United States, up from 17,000 in the year 2000, I thought, hmm, I better go figure out what I got wrong (laughs) and what's going on. And that's what gave birth to San Francisco. Was there a moment in your environmental activism that precipitated your disenchantment with some elements of progressivism? I mean, I was never Malthusian, meaning I never thought mm-hmm. there was too many people in the world. It always That always struck me as vaguely racist, as it seemed to be disproportionately focused on Latin America or Africa. 
that strain of the environmental movement, I never, I was never behind. So I, and I always thought that there would be technical solutions to environmental problems that made intuitive sense to me. You know, you looked at agriculture and, and it made sense that we would use some non-polluting energy technology as the solution to climate change. And then the big event, of course, well, not maybe not of course, but for me was changing my mind about nuclear power. And once I became pro-nuclear in 2010, really 20, between 2007 and 2010, I was becoming more pro-nuclear. And by the time you really become pro-nuclear, then you kind of go, well, why, you know, why, what is the environmental problem at all if we have this technology that basically reduces the human footprint to near zero, certainly for energy, you know, even, but even fresh water and fuel production, if you look at things like hydrogen, why, are, why, if we care about the environment, are we against nuclear? And then nothing made any sense at all. And I had mm. to spend 10 years figuring out how is it that, how is it that the technologies that require the most land use became viewed as the most, as the best for the environment. Mm -hmm. And also just the fact that nuclear power is an extraordinary non-carbon <laughs> source of energy. And, and one of the things I said in a column I did recently riffing off some of your stuff is uh, you could write a history by aliens of the human race in a couple of hundred years. They would say, Mankind overdid it really with its with its industry and its and its and its energy and and its use of fossil fuels and nearly destroyed the entire planet. But just in time, they discovered this amazing technology called nuclear, which enabled them to save the planet from such a fate because it emitted no carbon. But they didn't do it. They decided they'd much rather have acres of of, of solar panels. It is a weird thing. But again, what strikes me about it and we'll get to that with your book, is that it's, it doesn't have to be either or, does it? It can be both and. In other words, that John doesn't have to be in favor of nuclear and against renewables. You can be in favor of all of the above and do so in a pragmatic way. Then you can argue about emphases on the future, where you think the best investments will be made, how carbon could be most effectively reduced. But I was kind of staggered, to be honest. Just, I don't want to get but by the LA Times editorial against closing in favor of closing the Diablo Canyon nuclear site in California, which struck me as just even though they know it will increase carbon emissions to do that, even though it really would be easy to keep it, keep it up and running, not too hard anyway, they still won't do it. And when I read the editorial quite closely, I was like, where, where is this? except the Three Mile Island and the general sense of catastrophe that could happen. What did you make of that editorial? You, I'm sure you saw it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that was, I wrote Apocalypse Never. I mean, Apocalypse Never started as a book about nuclear, which I'm actually mm -hmm. now, I'm coming back to. And it evolved into a broader book about environmental alarmism. But that's the question I had, which is why if nuclear energy is sort of the solution to so many environmental problems, conventional air pollution, carbon emissions, but also land use, materials throughput, since, you know, a single Coke can of uranium produces enough energy for my entire high energy life, that's the material throughput for nuclear power plants. So, you know, some very small amounts of mining tailings, but basically that's it. Why are we why are we against it? And that took me down the rabbit hole for years, really trying to understand the history of nuclear and where you go to very quickly. But trying to get to the bottom of it, it contains a significant amount more of mystery is how much of this is fear of nuclear weapons 
and how much of it is, you know, how much of it is ignorance, how much of it is fear of nuclear weapons, and how much of it is opposition to kind of a high energy society. And ultimately, I kind of came to the latter, you know, with the caveat that nuclear weapons are extremely serious. I mean, I, I take nuclear extremely seriously. I've had a kind of, I have moments where I'm like, am I done with this yet? Like I've been working on nuclear for a long time. I've been writing about it at length for a long time. And I'm kind of like, am I done yet? And it's like, no, I got one more big book to write because it's a big deal. I mean, the technology itself is just a radical altering of geopolitical relationships. I mean, that's fundamentally what nuclear is about. And they knew that right away. And that's the effect it's had. Hasn't quite spread as a weapon in the ways that they worried about. We have shields, for example, rather than and alliances, rather than every country getting their own nuclear weapon. But it's a serious, I don't, I, I mean, it's a serious burden. It's a serious, I mean, you could call it a curse. I think it's a bit of a, of, of a cursed blessing, you know, more than a blessed curse. But I wouldn't argue with you if you just thought of it as a burden, because it is such a serious technology. It's really the only way that we can kind of quickly destroy human civilization. I think we're pursuing it in much slower ways. But, you know, nuclear weapons are a very big deal and they are related to the energy source. And so there was a lot of, I'm a heretic among heretics within the nuclear, the pro-nuclear community in that, in a bunch of different ways, but certainly in my view that this is, the weapons technology is not something that you're going to get rid of, certainly anytime soon or until some new powerful tool comes along. But I think that dealing with that reality, that that fact, the apocalyptic potential of nuclear weapons is a big part of the story, but so is sort of the Malthusian opposition to living a high energy society. All right, let's get back to your current book after that brief digression into nuclear. But it's also interesting to see how your, your essentially left activist direction was checked in some ways by, by conundrums you arrived at on the way and couldn't figure yeah. out. And that seems to be also kind of critical about the question of homelessness. Now, we have seen, obviously, huge increases in homelessness in West Coast cities, not so much in other cities. Uh, am I right about that? That's, that's, and, and why is that, in your view, happening? Why is homelessness exploding in California and not, for example, in New York City? Great. Thank you for asking. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit more than I have over the previous uh, two months that the book's been out. Is it two months? Yeah, two months the book's been out. I'm going to unpack it a little bit more because there is more complexity than, than I can originally communicate. But the official data show that the number of people classified as homeless increased 31% in California and declined by 18% in the rest of the United States. Now, that data is now two years old. It was really taken. It's a point in time count. So it's a it's a it's a census that lasts during a particular point in time, one or two days for teams to go out and count all the people classified as homeless, which includes people living on the street, which are classified as unsheltered. Or intense, or in RVs. But which years really. are we talking about here with the increase of 30%? Over which, what amount of time? Oh, sorry, between 2010 and 2020. Okay. So, so up 30% are... in California and down 18% anyway. So there we have a yes. pretty obvious, like, what is going on here? And what's your explanation for why, apart from one imagines the weather, which, which does make the West Coast more conducive to 
to homelessness, although it would make the entire south of the United States <laughs> a complete uh, haven for the homeless otherwise. But So explain to me why you think that's happened. Yeah, and let me just add the quick caveat on those numbers. So those numbers are two years old, and I know for a fact that the number of unsheltered homeless who are really street addicts living in open drug scenes has increased significantly over the last two years. And because of significant, just because of a high amount of kind of individual reports, not through any quantitative scientific census. So those numbers are now wrong, the ones that I mentioned. But certainly over the previous 10 years, there was a big change. As you mentioned, yes, right away you go, how could this be a weather phenomenon? If it were, then why, why is it that you don't have the same open drug scenes in Carmel, California, a very affluent city on the Central Coast? Or why don't we have open drug scenes or homelessness in Beverly Hills? Why is it in particular neighborhoods and in particular places? People say, well, it's because of rents. But rents went up in Miami and Phoenix and many other cities that are also warm, and yet they're, they sheltered their homeless. So at a simplest level, what I conclude in San Francisco is that you have as many people on the streets as you don't require stay in shelters. So you can, you can have plenty of shelter space. And if you don't require people to sleep in shelters, then you're going to have a lot of people sleeping on the streets in warm places where there is things that people want from the streets. The main thing that people, the, the vast majority of the people on the street, I mean, basically when I ask social workers who work in places like Skid Row or Tenderloin, how many people in these tents sleeping outside on the streets are addicted to hard drugs or alcohol or some combination, the number is like 100%. Even the, even the seriously mentally ill people are often on very significant substances some people would argue that everybody that's addict that's addicted to drugs is suffering from a mental illness that they either called addiction or some untreated mental illness or both. But one doesn't need to go that far to conclude that what we really are looking at when we call when we call these things hope, homeless encampments are what Europeans call open drug scenes. So one of the many aha moments in this book is just going on to Google Scholar and discovering in 15 seconds that if you type in open air drug dealing, you quickly find this incredible paper, research paper, done by a, a Norwegian researcher and expert in methadone, the alternative to heroin, where he goes and interviews people in five different European cities, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Lisbon, Vienna, and Zurich, about their open drug scenes that they had, mostly related to heroin, and shut down and how they did it. And you read it and you're just like, he's describing what we call homeless encampments, but they're not creating the euphemism that this is about a housing. They're actually talking about how this is a function of addiction. You become addicted to hard drugs. You stop working. You overstay your welcome with friends and family. They kick you out. They cut you off and you live on the street so that all the money you have can go to supporting your, your addiction. So there is, you, you, you would argue there is no relationship between, for example, the massively skyrocketing rents and house prices in prosperous places like San Francisco and the rise of homelessness? I mean, surely that has some role to play. I think there's an indirect role. But let me, before I say what I think the indirect role is, let me, let me sort of describe if you are priced out of your apartment, you can no longer afford to live in that apartment and you need a new apartment and you have no underlying drug problem. 
and you have no underlying mental illness problem, are you going to go and pitch a tent on the dirtiest and most dangerous sidewalks in the dirtiest and most dangerous neighborhoods in your city? And the answer is no, you are not. And we do not find people that do that. There is no evidence that that's what people do when they say, I can't afford my rent. Is there some evidence that people will live in their car for a while? Yes. Is there some evidence that that a mother escaping an abusive husband may end in her car? Yes. Although we do a very good job through Child Protective Services of making sure that kids don't end up on the street and that moms with their kids end up getting shelter, often not congregate either, often their own apartment to help them tide over. But when people are priced out of a market, that's not what they do. They just don't do that. They don't go live in tents in the tenderloin in an open drug scene. They go to a, um, they go to somewhere which has cheap housing, presumably. Yeah, I mean, millions of people have left California after they couldn't afford the rent, right? I mean, for decades, millions of people have left the state and gone to other places where they could afford the rent, or they've they've if they couldn't afford the rent in in one place, they would go get rent in a lower rent um, apartment or house. So. So I think the first thing is, and I, the reason I make such a big deal of this is that there's a kind of like cognitive connection that people have, especially when you frame this as homelessness, which is why I always say homelessness is a propaganda word. It was literally invented and promoted in the 1980s with the explicit intention of misleading people about the nature of the problem and advocating for housing. It was, well, well, this well, is not well, my view. Well, they, well, you're attributing motives to people that that is, is not entirely clear. What evidence do you have that it was motivated politically to describe this term homelessness? It seems to, by the way, it just seems to me a pretty banal term. It's just people living without homes, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that seems, it seems to me a yeah. pretty, not exactly misleading. How could it be misleading? So the word homeless was certainly there in the scholarly literature going back to the 1920s. But the two main, the two of the biggest experts on homelessness that I cite, one is Teresa Gowan, who did an anthropologist who wrote about this and comes from the radical left. She traces the history and she finds that that is explicitly what the intentions of the activists were. The intentions were explicitly to advocate for housing as the solution and not, for example, to address the underlying drug addiction or mental illness problems. So um, it was a way of displacing what you felt with core aspects of the problem with one single aspect of the problem that was a little deceptive in terms of what was actually happening. The argument was explicitly that talking about addiction and mental illness would result in stigmatization and detract attention away from housing. But again, don't take my word for it. I mean, what San Francisco does is it actually, it's the, the key to this book is that I'm using liberal and progressive texts and interviews and experts to say all of this. Another person who was there at the time, one of the leading experts on homelessness at the University of Pennsylvania, says explicitly, he goes, advocates chose this term because it's a nice, fluffy term designed to make people more sympathetic to people who they feared were not sympathetic, to people who they had tended to blame for their problems. So it's not, I don't even think the intentions I don't think they were like bad or sinister. They were trying to elicit greater sympathy and win more money for housing. I actually happen to support a significant amount of public investment in housing. So I don't have any knee-jerk opposition or free market opposition to that. What I'm objecting to is the misdiagnosis and mischaracterization of an extremely sick population. If you're living in tents in the Tenderloin or on Skid Row, you're very ill. 
and you've become much more ill. You're in very late stage addiction. You're often, these are folks that are using meth and smoking fentanyl every four hours, except for when they're sleeping at night. These are people, these are folks who engage in really sad and desperate behaviors, including of a sexual variety and of a violent variety that I actually ended up, ex- a fair amount of it, I ended up excluding from the book because it's so horrendous to even read about. So, so this is not my view. That's just who's there. Now, again, that's not to say there's not somebody who is homeless for a few nights, particularly if they're living out of their car or if there's someone escaping a bad relationship, but it's temporary. It's usually getting some kind of shelter and it's not in the open air drug scene. Now, of course, there's a strange confluence there when you go back to the uh, 1980s, because you also have libertarians, among them Ronald Reagan, who is the person, Reagan, who pioneered the idea that the mentally ill nonetheless should retain as much as possible of their rights not to be committed to mental hospitals, to be directed against their will to do things they didn't want to do. A weird thing, isn't it, that Reagan and Foucault would have such a a, a weird agreement about about the the the, the inc- we're not in well in some ways it is incarceration, but the the forced confinement of of people with profound and difficult mental illnesses. Yeah, I mean that's right. I mean I think it's important to remember that by the time Reagan became governor of California, half of the population of California's psychiatric hospitals had already been released. The high point actually was in the 1930s after World War II, Life magazine and other newspapers at the behest of Quakers and Mennonites ran a series of exposés about the conditions in America's psychiatric hospitals. They were short staffed. They had just been through a war and a Great Depression. There was there was poor conditions without question. I always point out, though, that, you know, we're dealing with First of all, the hospitals themselves were this just amazing, one of the great progressive achievements of the 19th century, in part because they were taking severely mentally ill people out of basement dungeons where they were chained up or stuck in their barns or just killed. That's what Dorothy Dix, the great American um, creator of psychiatric hospitals, did. But you get to the you get to the early 20th century, mid 20th century. They were in decline. The, the, it's interesting. A lot of those reformers actually wanted more money for the hospitals and for care. But then you have a very, it's both the, it's really the radical left later. It's actually liberal, just your average liberal do-gooders who got carried away, who then said, we got to shut all the hospitals down and just, and treat everybody in the community. And we can do it with the combination of these new antipsychotics and with uh, community care. And, you know, you read that period and honestly, it reminded me of, reading about when Belgian got out of the Congo, where I'm reading, like when you read about how Belgian got out of the Congo, or it's a little bit like how America got just got out of Afghanistan, you're like, why was it such a, just a complete shit show? Like, why was it just such a mess and such a hurry? Like they literally, like there really are cases of hospitals dumping people on the streets, giving them a little bit of money and that's it. I mean, you're kind of like, you, it's hard to believe but basically what happened was it became a moral panic, getting people out of the hospitals. The psychiatrists got demonized. I mean, by the time you get to one flew over the cuckoo's nest, the, the, you know, which won like tons of Academy Awards, of course, depicting a, a sane man in a psychiatric hospital, complete with all sorts of Native American romance. And, but you get to that and already they're shutting down the hospitals and in a hurry. But after that happens, it just becomes even more manic. 
And so, yeah, a huge part of the homeless population in the 1980s is coming from former psychiatric hospitals. Another big contributor that I didn't even appreciate until I did this research was the crack epidemic. Just a huge amount of the home of the so-called homeless population living in shelters, but also living on the street in the 1980s were addicted to crack and often because it pairs with alcohol, crack and alcohol. And that was that's what we would kind of call the birth of modern homelessness is the combination of those two groups. The, 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 the combination of the, the mentally unwell and those who have become addicted to various hard drugs. We're not talking about stoners here, are we? We're not talking about people doing magic mushrooms or we're talking about heroin, meth, fentanyl. Psychedelics uh, mostly, so, yeah. Psychedelics mostly get off the hook, although ecstasy led to a fair amount of meth abuse in in San Francisco. One of my characters became a meth addict after really starting with ecstasy as a party drug. But yes, it's the hard stuff. I mean, you know, there was certainly homelessness before that, and it was often alcohol related. But what was interesting is, of course, in the 1980s, heroin and cocaine were were high class drugs that the poor couldn't afford. What crack did, of course, is it significantly reduced the price and the potency or made the potency much shorter lived. And so that made that made cocaine available to a much larger group. Right. And so eventually this 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 population is becoming entrenched. Now, one thing you could do, and this is what other cities do, is mandate shelters. I mean, bring people in, force them to come in for the sake of I mean that it's easy to do, I suppose, in cities which have very cold winters and can have some freezing cold nights, unlike some parts of many parts of California. But California in particular did not decide to use shelters, which which is, I mean, I would imagine everyone would benefit from a safe bed at night in a place that is at least not likely to be interrupted by crime or violence or 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 noise or the general mayhem that you see in these encampments. So why? Why you why think so. stop building shelters? Why not have shelters everywhere? Yeah, and I show one of my you, favorite I mean you'd graphs. also avoid some of these incredibly, you know, in, in increasingly growing large encampments of people. If they were all in shelters, you would have a better access to them, right? You'd have better able to reach them. You'd have better ability to deal with their addiction, maybe. But tell me why, for example, San Francisco did not build shelters. Well, this was, of course, a huge mystery, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite graphs I, I produced, I show a graph that just shows the homeless population divided in, like bar charts of different cities, New York, San Francisco, let's just take those two. And and you and the and it's a stacked bar chart, so you can see what share of the homeless population is sheltered and what share is unsheltered. And in San Francisco, it's about a third sheltered and two thirds unsheltered. And in New York, it's over ninety five percent sheltered. Now, the conventional wisdom kind of goes, well, that's because it's cold in New York. But in truth, warm areas like San Francisco could easily require people to stay in shelter. And in fact, if New York didn't require it, there would be more unsheltered people on the streets. And so that was that's the requirement doesn't end in the requirement doesn't end in the spring and summer. Right. It's it's a it's a permanent requirement. Right. That's right. And it's that is changing, too. In in New York, there are more unsheltered homeless. 
But yeah, it was a decision to require people to stay in shelter, which, by the way, is also something that the Europeans require, which is why when you go to downtown, downtown Amsterdam and Zurich and, and Lisbon, you don't see big tents of, of street addicts sleeping on the street. It's also illegal to use drugs in public like that. So, yeah, I mean, it took a fair amount of sleuthing, but I was basically able to to track down the major players that have over the years argued for diverting any money that could have gone into shelters into what's called permanent supportive housing, which is also um, under the brand Housing First. Now, Housing First is official federal U.S. government policy, but it doesn't mean that cities can't fund sufficient shelter. And so that's why you see this big difference between New York and San Francisco. And the bottom line is there's just folks on the radical left, on the progressive side of things in California that that not only advocate for the diversion of funding from shelters to housing, they protest and do everything in their means to prevent the cities from requiring people to sleep in shelter. That's much of what the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness does. They even, in a recent piece I wrote, I described how they even tried to stop the city from shutting down a so-called homeless encampment, really an open drug scene, even though it contained a pregnant woman. And I had this insider, this person that was very inside the homeless establishment say to me, what like was a bizarre situation? Like, what are you doing? You're defending the right of, of people to be pregnant, living on the street, danger to themselves and others. But that's the extreme to which that particular segment of the homeless advocacy community has gone. And their argument is that the root causes of this are a lack of affordable housing. And if we provide shelters, we're just putting a sort of Band-Aid on a wound. And in fact, we'll be reducing pressure to, to create housing in the first place, right? That's, that's, the, that's the core argument, right? They, won't, they don't say the second, they don't say the latter part publicly. <laughs> They do say it privately, though, by the way. But yes, they the public line is, how dare you try to move this person's tent and not let them sleep here? How dare you? This person's a victim of trauma and structural racism and capitalism. And you rich person with a house, you housed person are, are just trying to stoke violence because you just don't want to have to look at the person. And that line of attack, which I personally experienced naturally as researching the book, is so potent that it has succeeded in allowing the just the growth of unsheltered homelessness in San Francisco over the last 30 years. So part of the philosophy of the left, which is that human beings are essentially products of structural forces, that, that our problems are almost always systemic, that individuals do not have agency, full agency, if they're part of various particular racial or identity groupings. And therefore, the only solution to all these problems that we see is a, a revolution of some sort. Until then, let's let's heighten the contradictions, I suppose. But, but what it means Until is Until then, that it's immoral to move them, yeah. It's also it's immoral. immoral to jail them for shoplifting. Yes. It's immoral to enforce the laws on vagrancy or loitering or theft. So in, essentially, the, author, the authorities in these places have said, because of structural racism, people of certain races have permission to steal, attack, or generally speaking, 
break the laws in a way in which other people would not be allowed to. Is that is that where we're getting getting to? Yeah, you got it. I mean, there's a way in which like everything that we call woke now with like the idea that we're going to you know lower educational requirements, something I briefly mentioned, you know, you know, just reduce overall, you know, testing, math and science, all those things. That whole desire to kind of lower standards, I see really beginning on this issue of homelessness. Like it really starts 30 years ago where you're sort of like, you know, on the one hand, I pointed out, it's like, you know, San Francisco and Seattle used to have conferences about what walkable cities they were, what walkable, livable cities they are. But at the same time, they were saying, well, I guess it's better to sacrifice that city life, that public city life for victims. There is a way in which it's almost like a kind of, you know, it's almost like a ritual or sort of a display, you know, and so it's an unintended consequence on the one hand, but it is notable that really it's saying we care about victims so much that we're going to just let them take over large areas of the city. And, and we think it would be immoral to require them to sleep indoors. Yeah. The other aspect of what you propose is that not only would uh, we return to the days in which people could be, uh, well, they can be in California, but in many parts of the city, many parts of the country, but in California, you could actually return to serious shelter uh, propositions, but with also full-on attempts both to manage the addiction and then to slowly wean people into more productive life. In other words, that now, I think there's a nuance here in a way, which I'm not sure where you stand on, because in some ways, it seems to me that there are some harm reduction stuff that, that go in there and they do not demand immediate cessation of drug use. In fact, they actually have a program in which certain, certain kinds of drugs are allowed to be continued over a period of time, and with, but with therapy and with support that enable people slowly to wean themselves up. It's, it's extremely hard to wean yourself off fentanyl, for Christ's sake. And that's, is that a model that, that there's anywhere in the United States that's now doing? In other words, making it conditional in order for you to get shelter, you have to enroll in some kind of recovery program, some kind of program that can help rehabilitate you into a more functional, independent way of living. Yeah, I mean, and to some extent, that's really what everybody did, you know, decades ago, and it's still being done. And there was a large body of research done out of Birmingham, which showed that when you make housing contingent on on abstinence, you had significantly lower rates of drug use and drug addiction. So, but it's exactly what you said. I mean, what my one of but the but you don't have to go that said, far, right? You don't have to say give it all up now, or you won't get. You would say come into the shelters now. We will find someone to help you. We will set out a program to get you, if you can, off these drugs and attempt to find a way to rehabilitate you into society. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the overarching way I think that my, my main character, a social worker in the Netherlands, put it is he just said, you always have to have carrots and sticks. You always have to have some benefit that you're offering people for better behavior, and there always needs to be a consequence for bad behavior. And once you adopt that mentality around somebody, there's you always have to have something. So usually it is their own private room. You know, so I saw this, this social worker, Renee, arguing with people who wanted their own room, and he would say, if you start taking your meds and you got, you know, you start taking your antipsychotics to a woman that was psychotic, then you can have your own room. And, and she also had been had her children taken from her. And so the other 
offer would eventually be to offer her to reunite with her children, but she had to comply with her psychiatric meds because when she's not on her psychiatric meds, she's psychotic. Another man wasn't going to work and he wanted his own room and Renee had lined up a job for him. And he said, if you start going to your job, so it's not always addiction, but certainly addiction is the same thing. Yeah, you can have your own room or you can stay in this congregate shelter, which is not super great. You know, shelters are not, they, they should be safe. They should be clean, but they're not supposed to be super nice. I mean, that's not the point. The point is independence. Now, there's some people who are, have schizophrenia and they're the best they're going to, the best outcome for them is they're ever going to have at most, some of them actually can live alone and have a job. They need continued support structure. That's the best outcome. But even my aunt who suffered schizophrenia, she lived in a group home in Denver. She had great outcomes, never got addicted to hard drugs, was never homeless, but she didn't work, you know, because it's she's mentally ill. But if you're a 25 year old kid addicted to fentanyl, yeah, it's hard to kick, but we send you to a 90 day rehab in the Central Valley where you're going to work on an organic farm and learn woodworking, woodworking and Python. And you're going to have group therapy and you're going to re be reaffiliated with family and friends, and we're going to have a job lined up for you after you get out. That's a path towards independence. But it, but I think one thing mm -hmm. I didn't fully realize, and I really came to appreciate with this book, was drug treatment. It's not something that people do to you. Like that's part. That's a like that's a kind of a myth. Like there's a sense in which you go get drug treatment, and somebody gives you drug treatment, and then you are abstinent. I mean, there is medically assisted treatment, which means that you would give people opioid replacements like methadone or suboxone, which is a superior version of it. I'm very open on that stuff, as are the Dutch around around replacements that help people to live independent functioning lives. But the work still has to be done by the person. And that means that that person still needs to be under some amount of pressure. There needs to be some amount of accountability for their behavior. And what's basically happened in San Francisco and other progressive cities is this just constant gradual effort to get rid of the accountability side of the equation and just have carrots. And the funny thing, of course, is that when the carrots aren't carrots anymore, if you're just going to get a house with a no with no conditions, it's not a reward for good behavior. It's just something that you're entitled to. And therefore, there's no incentive for you to deal with the underlying reason you're homeless, which is your addiction. And if you believe, as I think, as I as I do, in part, at least, I think this is pretty well established. The addiction and mental illness are as, as real as physical illnesses. They're as real as they can kill you. <laughs> they can place you in incredibly difficult circumstances. They are generated in some cases, especially with extreme mental illness, with definite things that are physical in the brain. If people were suffering from physical illnesses like this on the street, if people were clearly, for example, dying of cancer, or if they were in the last day, we would we would be concerned, right? I mean, when I see, for example, let's take the example of vaccines. Now, here we have a weird sort of flip, don't we? Because progressives are basically, everyone needs to get this vaccine. They're particularly energized about the fact that white Republicans don't, but it's also a fact, and they realize this, and in their honest moments tell you that it's also a big problem with poor Latino, African-American people in some of the major cities. Do they argue passionately that there should be no pressure on people to get a vaccine? That we shouldn't be going in there proactively attempting to get people well or prevent them from getting sick. We should sit back and let this happen, even though they could be putting themselves at severe risk of severe illness and death and also doing it to other people. So why 
Why is that analogy not appropriate for mental illness on the street, which again, is not purely your own illness. It is something that is also affecting everyone around you. In fact, mental illness can in some ways, I think, have a bigger social impact and a familial impact actually than physical illness. I mean, people used to say, if there's one mentally ill person in your household, everyone has some sort of mental illness because they have to adapt to it and they have to deal with it and, and adjust to it. So, I mean, that's my feeling is that, is, is that if we really do believe that mental health is as important as physical health, and if we want to even make that distinction, which I'm a little unclear about, then surely we need to have a different attitude towards those who people are terribly sick on the streets. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've fully gotten to the bottom of what appears to me as well to be a contradiction between progressive attitudes on COVID and vaccines and progressive attitudes towards addicts. But let me tell you what they say. And by the way, it's identical, it's identical to secondhand smoke, progressives uh, and, and smoking. Progressives were very much against smoking. They, and they said, well, we're against it because of secondhand smoke. And then they would still try to put all sorts of punishments on smoking, even when it doesn't, when, you know, even secondhand smoke was never, it was hyped basically to be much bigger, to imply a much more significant damage from other people. That's sort of how COVID is justified is that it affects us all. If you say, well, but street addiction affects me, then they say, well, that's why we have to have places indoors and we need to provide them with the safe drugs that they can use. So that's where this is all headed. They just opened a state-sponsored drug injection facility in New York. They opened one, they want to open one in San Francisco. They, these do exist in, in the Netherlands, but there's not that many people that use them. And they're always putting pressure on addicts who engage in self-destructive or destructive behaviors to get the help they need. I draw the line for me, I draw it at, you know, if you're smoking fentanyl in the privacy of your own home, I think that's nuts. But I don't think that public resources should be expended on on hunting you down. It becomes a problem when you're doing it publicly. And that becomes because that's a public space. It's not safe. And that's where we draw the line. But yeah, I mean, I think that it does seem contradictory that it's so libertarian. I mean, they would say to me things like it's bodily autonomy for street addicts. So because I, I would say, well, what if they what if you, you know, break the law and the judge says you can go to prison or you can get treatment. And they would say, the progressive leaders, they would say to me, that shouldn't be the choice. You should not be required to get uh, drug treatment. And I was like, well, what if you're offered it as an alternative to prison? And they would say, well, you shouldn't go to prison or jail for the things that you're describing. I think it has ultimately, they keep coming back to the fact that the, the idea is that the people on the street are victims and that the homeless are victims and to, to victims, everything and nothing should be required. Well, it does seem to me that there might be an argument that to help people in the early stages, you might allow them to have safer uh, places to have the drugs that they have had before. But in other words, there are, there are good pragmatic reasons not to shift people to dramatically in a certain direction and to but to bring them into places. So I I'm I'm agnostic about about that. It seems to me that so, that you might be able to bring more people in if you if you began them on the drugs that they're already using and then were able to transition them off. But the fact that you're taking their illness seriously seems to be the most important thing to me. I mean it, it is 
The other question to me is that by the time you are in one of these encampments and you have developed a meth addiction or a fentanyl addiction, how, 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 how it's incredibly hard to get out of there, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of bottomless pit really of, 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 and in some ways it strikes me that we're preventing people from hitting that bottom in a way by propping them up at the point where they really need to be helped. How much is the rise in murder in some of these cities related to these questions or even the rise in hate crimes. One of the things that interests me about these stories about anti-Asian hate crimes is that whenever I, I mean, I, I was told by the mainstream media, it's a bunch of white supremacists who are going around demonizing Asians because Trump said China virus. But when I saw all the actual videos or incidents that you could see of this happening, a lot of them seemed to be committed by mentally unwell people on the streets who suddenly had some weird association or just an impulsive attack or, or people pushing people into, onto railway tracks or these, when I see them, I just can't imagine why are they doing, was someone walking up to a elderly, you know, Asian lady, just kicking her and then not even robbing her, just these kind of weird acts of, of lunacy. Is there any actual data that would help us understand if some of these these incidents are related essentially to mental illness rather than just simply anti-Asian bias or or other kind of motives? Well, the short answer is very poor data on the one hand, although we have a pretty good understanding because of from different cases of the different kinds of crimes and who's who's causing them. So different crimes, for example, by addicts just trying to steal enough to survive by more hardened criminals that are smashing into luxury stores or breaking into cars is a different group of people or robbing Asians because they, they carry a lot of cash with them. I mean, that's the, that's what they didn't, people didn't really explain was like, huh. clearly some people were targeting Asians because they carry more cash with them. Uh, why did they carry more cash? Just, 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 just tradition, conventional. Really? I mean, cultural. Like Chinatown in San Francisco. I mean, there was one case in San Francisco where there was a, a Chinese woman. I'm sorry to laugh. It's a terrible situation. But she was assaulted by a man who was then they showed him on a stretcher. They had really good video of him on a stretcher. And he was clearly unsheltered, homeless in a psychotic state. And then you go, well, Sometimes people go like, well, I had, what was he psych- Was he psychotic because of meth or from underlying mental illness? Nobody knows. All we can do is identify psychotic states. That's all we're able to do. So yeah, now the rise in homicide, I do three chapters on homicide. So homicide, of course, is the emperor of all crimes. It's, it's the best tract. It's the one that we study the most for good reason. It's such an important crime. And I became very taken with basically two schools on homicides. The first is the school of legitimacy, which is that homicides go up when when the when people stop believing that the system is fair or that the rules of the system are being fairly applied. And so basically the conventional wisdom right now Andrew and I don't think people realize it, but certainly the the consensus view among main the most mainstream criminologists in the United States including maybe the top criminologist Richard Rosenfeld at University of Missouri, St. Louis, who I interviewed at length. The mainstream view is that anti-police, Black Lives Matters protests, increased the homicide rate. And it did so in two ways. At first, 
resulted in police withdrawing from policing, particularly the kinds of policing activities that prevent homicides, which just includes a lot of cop potential criminal engagement, just like you, you know, police know who the killers are, right? I mean, that's the thing people forget. And then it also emboldened the would-be killers. They, they go, you know, F the system, the system's against me, nobody cares, they become nihilistic, they develop a resentment, a grievance-based discourse in their head, and they go, I'm gonna go kill Jimmy, or whatever. I'm gonna go kill that guy who slided my girlfriend. The reasons don't change, but it's just un, it's just clear from, and it's very hard to kind of be like, how do you quantify it? They've attempted it. But basically, just periods where there there's just real challenges to the legitimacy of the criminal justice system, we see big increases in in homicides. It's a very, as you might imagine, this is not a very comfortable conclusion to come to because when the New Yorker reviewed the main book on this that argues this, it's called American Homicide. It's a brilliant book. I don't agree with the author on everything, but it's a really brilliant book about American homicides over hundreds of years, where he shows this relationship to legitimacy. The New Yorker reviewer, of course, just was like, this is this is horrible because it suggests that anti-police protests result in the deaths of black people. It's not it's not something it's not a conclusion. I don't think anybody signs up to want to find, but it's hard to escape it. Now, the other the other thing, though, is that that's not the end of the story. I think that there is very good evidence that New York did change how it did policing in a way to reduce homicides that really it did work. You know, and it gets kind of reduced to stop and frisk. And there's questions around racial profiling that are definitely worth having a conversation about. In San Francisco, I reviewed a huge amount of evidence of there being racism in policing and racial disparities, but not just disparities, also some racism. And and that's certainly there. There's no doubt about it. But I when I when you kind of go, if you care about both mass incarceration and homicide, then there's really only one solution, which is to reduce homicide. Because if you reduce homicide, you also reduce mass incarceration. And so, and and it's just, homicide's the worst. I mean, it's just, it's not just, it's, you know, it's obviously somebody's lost their life, but it's devastating to families, it's devastating to communities. Living in fear is horrible. So I just became a real big advocate of, you know, look, I'm not going to go say you shouldn't protest police violence. That's That's stupid. On the other hand, we have got to restore public confidence in the police, in the criminal justice system. If you don't have confidence in that system, you're going to have more homicides, full stop. And that means that the police have to do better. But that paradoxically means there should be more funding for police. I mean, yeah. I came to like, I, I became super pro-police after working on this book. I was like, policing yep. is just good if you want to reduce police violence. Having more police is good. Yes. And so absolutely you, and, and you have uh what i found particularly striking in the summer of 2020 was not just the the violence and rioting and looting that happened but the way in which the authorities in the country including someone who is now vice president of the united states kamala harris openly sided with rioters and looters now they didn't do so in so many terms but they definitely contributed to funds for bail, bail out of these people. They and Harris said that this is going to continue and go on and on. At the New York Times, when New York City was being looted and rioting was happening in the streets, they they insisted on firing their executive editor. I'm not their executive editor; they're op-ed uh, editor because of running a piece arguing for the need to restore order 
Now, once people realize that the people at the very top don't really care about order, that they actually care about what they call racial justice more than order. When, when the mayor of DC is allowing 16th Street to have defund the police written in letters so large on the street that you can see it from drones above, what message is that sending to the cops? What message is that sending to criminals? Which is that we have now been given permission to kill. And then there's also the question of, of what happens when it happens, when murder rate rises, and there isn't really an ability to prevent it or to bring those people to justice. You then set precedents of more and more violence, which is what we tend to be seeing. It tends not to, once this dynamic begins, in the, the cycle of accepting and expecting, like inflation in a way, accepting order, then disorder can metastasize. And then when you have cities like Seattle allowing a whole neighborhood to be essentially lawless, and this is supported by the authorities, and then supported by the voters. I mean, that's what's also kind of striking. Liberal voters who want criminals seemingly want criminals to go free, that they, they will not arrest them for shoplifting up to 950 bucks or something. Is that, is that the right number? Something like that, right? Yes. So if you're below 950, you can get away with it. I, I've heard stories of people, of, 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 of gangs going into these big stores and double checking every single price so that they know they're just underneath the 950. And they walk right out of the store in front of the in front of the cashiers, in front of the, the, the security guards, in front of the cops, and no, and in fact, they are told, we, our culture is telling them, that's okay. I, 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 that's I'm, just forgive me for venting a little bit, but I, I cannot understand how a society that wants to actually sustain itself actually thinks that is a good way to help people, to, to essentially legalize crime because the criminals are either of a certain race well, let's leave it at that because they're a certain race. Yeah, that's right. That's a really, really interesting question, which is, you know, 30 times more African-Americans are killed by civilians than by police. So why this intense focus on police killings? Well, you can argue, you know, police killings matter a lot because they're representatives of the state and they do undermine legitimacy. And I, I agree to some extent with that. But the lack of concern for homicide victims, the lack of concern I mean, the, the thing that Kamala Harris said that was really, really problematic to use the language of kids these days is was when she said that policing is really not important to reducing crime. And I, I mean, I have to say, Andrew, I was shocked to keep hearing this. I, another person on I, I was it was 60 Minutes. Uh, they had a whole segment on policing a couple of weeks ago and the expert they had on said the same thing. He said, well, we know that police don't you know, prevent crime as though that were true and were obvious, but of course it's completely false. It's been falsified. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, but of course we actually have good empirical evidence that more police reduce crime. And you, you know, we have good evidence that it reduces homicide. So it's a big lie, but yeah, I mean, how would, it, how would a society maintain its schools if it went around saying defund the teachers and um, the teachers don't matter to teaching? You know, that, I mean, it's, it's twisted. This is a big theme of mine, and my third book is going to be on the same issue, which is that these are there's a line that gets crossed 
And it's funny because there's this HBO movie called Judas and the Black Messiah about the Black Panthers. And there's a moment in there where they've united the whites and the Latinos and the African-Americans to protest police violence. And they're, they're giving this speech. I think it's the white guy, actually. He's giving a speech about police violence. And I'm sitting there nodding my head being like, yeah, right on, man. You got to stop that stuff. And then he goes, that's why we don't want police in our communities. And I was like, that is where you just crossed the line. That's like wrong. <laughs> Stop. You you were right. Like you should we should not accept police or we should, you know, work to reduce police violence. We should understand that to some extent there's bad apples everywhere. We want to reduce them. Of course, everybody should want that. But that's then you don't go to like we have to not have police. But yeah, well, that's you also hear the argument that policing is simply a, a, a modern reproduction of slave patrols. I mean, these other and actually prima facie ridiculous. What what what? It's it's to abandon any kind of thinking to just create one situation in history and to say this yeah. looks a little like it. Therefore, it is it. It's like this preposterous movie Thirteenth or the preposterous book, and I will call it that. Michelle Alexander's preposterous book about the new Jim yeah. Crow. This right. absurd attempt to redefine basic liberal values as essentially forms of oppression. And that's sort of right. what we're getting here. We're getting from the left, and, and this is, has to filter up to everyone in these public positions because it's now the doctrine, which is that liberal society is a, is a canard, that liberal democracy is a farce and a fraud. It's all about racial power. If it's all about racial power, and if one race is committing more crimes than another, then the criminal justice system is the problem, not the people committing the crimes. And the more you sink into this essentially Marxist framework for understanding our society, Marxist in very broad structural terms, Marxian probably is a better, better term for this, the, the more likely you are to remove agency from individuals completely require no responsibility from individuals, no sense of their own failures as well as their own successes. It's just all successes if they are a victim and it's all oppression if they are a victimizer. And, and that is kind of core. When, I'm, when people tell me, I'm sorry to vent here, but I'm, I'm, you've given me this opportunity. When people tell me that CRT and these debates about workery and, and the debates about liberal democracy are essentially trivial. They're not really important. They're about a, a few classes and a few universities. It's just not true. It is integral to the philosophy of the left at this point that liberal democracy is not the model that they are pursuing. And individual agency, liberalism as its, at its core understanding or defense of the individual has been abandoned. And they don't want to quite say this, and these, these pseudo-arguments emerge. Now, how how sustainable are these? When people like Chase Abudin, is that how you pronounce his name? Where these DAs are just proud, actually, of the fact that they are letting criminals go free, they're permitting theft, they're allowing low-level violence, and in fact, they regard any attempt to stop it as, as white supremacist. Aren't regular voters, and we certainly see this in New York City, we certainly see this among black voters, aren't they going to respond at some point? Aren't these people going to be thrown out of office in the near future, or is this more deeply embedded than we think? 
Well, it's such an interesting question. I just published a piece today about the backlash to all of this, and it is bru- it is starting, and it's going to be ferocious, I believe. Michael Nutter, the former mayor of Philadelphia, last week went out and denounced the current district attorney as white wokeism and white privilege, which I think is absolutely a good use of that term, white privilege. Krasner, the DA, the progressive DA in Philly, is white. And he had literally said there is no crime crisis. There is no violence crisis. There is no homicide crisis. Philly's going to have record homicides this year. Like since they've been keeping track since 1960, Philly is having record homicides. So how could you possibly, as the top law enforcement person in Philly, get up there and say that? And of course, the vast majority of victims are African-Americans. Of course, they are disproportionately as well. It's a heavily black city. It's completely gross and insensitive to play down this increase in violence. So I think it's a huge backlash. Chessa Bodine, I think, is going to be recalled from office next year. Literally right before this call with this podcast with you, Andrew, I the mayor of San Francisco just announced a big police crackdown on crime. I just tweeted about it. And it's not just it's on it's on the looting of the stores. It's on the drug dealing and it's on the car break ins. I was joking to my wife because it was like I was like, you know what? The thing is, liberals don't like crime either. Like that's, you know. Like, you know, you can be like, you know, you can say whatever you want, but like I wrote a piece about people in Beverly Hills buying guns and hiring security guards, pretty progressive people, you know, maybe not as progressive as some parts of whatever Malibu or Santa Monica, but Beverly Hills, pretty liberal place. Liberal people don't want to be victims of crime. And that is game changing. And the Democrats need to I mean, we saw. So I just point out Biden's polling approval on crime dropped from 43% to 36% in the last 60 days. Same polling company, same questions, it declined that amount. That's deadly territory for Democrats. For anybody who remembers, Republicans just beat the living daylights out of Democrats between the 19 in the 1970s and 80s and gained all sorts of won all sorts of elections attacking Democrats as soft in crime. So that's as as far as I can go in terms of forecasts, Andrew, there's going to be a big backlash. And I think Democrats are going to be stuck between, obviously, on the one hand, moderate swing voters who often determine the elections and their base, which is just completely out to lunch. They really view police as the bad guys. They really think the goal is to just get as many people out of jail and and prison. And I point out, you know, this is where I also parted company with the left. I never believed this, but I always thought the goal was to increase probationary type activities like drug testing, contingent housing, the things we were talking about before. If you want to reduce mass incarceration, but you still need to have accountability, electronic monitoring. I mean, the guy the guy that ran the people over in Waukesha, Wisconsin, should have had an electronic monitor on him, you know, and they don't want to do that because they have this really dumb, blunt view that they just want to reduce state involvement, state control over people that they've defined as victims. It's I think they're they're stuck. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of moderate Democrats go in one direction, but it's going to completely drive a huge wedge in the middle of the of the Democrats. Yeah. And it does seem that some of these horrible murders in Waukesha and actual mass murder are are committed by people who have been let out on bail, let out on uh, given a non custodial sentence or some bullshit even though they've just committed, just committed really violent crimes. I mean, this guy, Daryl Brooks, is a 
very nasty piece of work. And well, he had just run over his girlfriend in yes. the same SUV that he ran over 40 people. Yes. I'll tell you something else about that case. Now, what really happened to that? He, he was ran over yeah. his fucking, sorry. He ran over his girlfriend on his car, okay? Now, did she did she pursue charges on that? I mean, did she press charges on that or what happened? I don't oh, know sure. I mean, she doesn't need to. I mean, the other thing you have to remember is that like some people talk about the bail. But there that's doesn't need to be bail. That, right. There doesn't need to be bail. I mean, I my, one thing I became interested in is why wouldn't you attach an electronic monitor on his SUV that you could turn off if he starts misbehaving or on his ankle so you can monitor him. But they didn't want to do any of that because these prosecutors are so monomaniacally focused on reducing what they call justice involvement. They, they literally, the code for ex-cons or, or is now justice involved. They want to reduce the state's involvement. What? I'm just fascinated um, by this dude. An ex-con is now someone who is justice involved yes that's the woke you're kidding expression me? no i'm serious that's... i had to memorize all those <laughs> these people yeah, are I mean, out of their minds well and what made it worse too is that this guy his grievance and resentment and his pitying was fed by the anti-police protests so if you yes. go look at his facebook page he was all wrapped up in projecting his own failures onto the world. And he's a victim and F the man and F the system. And of course, you know, it's it's not like he doesn't have the courage to go and attack a police station. He goes and runs over innocent people just like he ran over his girlfriend. But those that's sort of I think what's important to understand is that this woke ideology is supporting the same narrative that criminals use to justify committing heinous crimes, often homicide, or as we, in this case, mass homicide. And we have to stop doing that. We have to stop giving people the the justification for these horrible acts. Well, out if Dallin some... Brooks was a victim of white supremacy, then driving his car over several white people at a Christmas parade is justified revolt, right? It's a I mean, there is revolt. a long tradition of, there's a long, I mean, there's a long radical tradition of justifying, of course, I mean, crime Look, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Pulitzer Prize winning jewel of the New York Times, when n noted that the riot, some of the rioting and looting had had the word 1619 atta attached to them. In other words, a piece of vandalism, which 1619 riots, said that she was proud, proud that her ideas had led to violence, proud that they had led to looting. This was a celebration of violence, raw physical violence, as long as it is committed by people of one race against another. I think that's the logic of where they are headed. Absolutely. As well as saying, and of course, that my saying something or you saying something is violence. <laughs> it's speech is violence, but violence is, is actually just simply legitimate revolt against white supremacy. In other words, they will police people's words Sooner they they will police their actions. It beggars belief, really. I, and I and, and I I agree with you. I do think there's going to be a huge backlash. I would be part of the reason I'm distressed is because the way the left has been destroying life in major cities and actively promoting crime and violence and rioting and looting means that the Republicans are going to have a massively powerful weapon. And we have in the Republican Party an absolutely insane person at the heart of it who is really unfit to, to, to be in any way in charge of anything. 
And that is what the left is going to bring us if they're not careful. Because people, regular normie people, who actually believe that murdering, hitting, assaulting people is wrong and should be permanently stigmatized, are going to have their say at some point in the political process. I totally agree with you. That is that's where San Francisco, that's where San Francisco, the book goes, is it goes directly there, which is needing to restore this kind of moderate ground on compassion and responsibility about order, public order. You know, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, really the the you know, I'm writing this essay right now called Why Progressives Undermine Civilization and you know, obviously they made a huge amount of headway in the universities, but, you know, Michel Foucault is not some obscure French academic. He's the most influential intellectual in American universities right now. People joke, people, I've heard people say things like cultural Marxism was, is a conspiracy theory. I'm like, I did six years of it. I did four years of it at my liberal arts school where we I read Gramsci like four times. I read Foucault. I read all that stuff. Two more years in grad school. But the thing is that Foucault absolutely justified crime and violence. He was a defender of the Iranian revolution. I mean, he he was a total nihilist in a certain sense, complete anarchist, you would say, you know, but it's like I kind of got to the point where I was like progressivism is really an ideology of not taking responsibility, of, of basically discouraging people from taking responsibility. We're going to go get people on the welfare rolls without taking responsibility. We're going to go shut down the psychiatric hospitals. We're going to we're going to stop funding shelters. We're going to basically do these things that 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 remove accountability both from the institutions and the individuals. And the result is chaos. I mean, the result is decivilization. The result is a destruction of the institutions, starting with the universities. But it now includes, you know, psychiatric hospitals, police stations, the criminal justice system, the meritocracy, electrical grids. Like it's a relentless attack on these basic institutions that are necessary for the functioning of a liberal society, you know. Um, Except they, somewhere... of course, they argue that those institutions need to be destroyed because liberal society is is a lie, and that it's a form of of oppression. And you know, Foucault also supported the abolition of all ages of consent in sex. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, and because, of course, the system that said children need to be protected was a system and all systems are inherently to be disrupted including permanent systems this is a this is a philosophy of constant undoing it is it is utterly uninterested in the concept of constructing of building of reforming adjusting all the things that institutions require if they're going to remain now i'm not a favor of institutions per se I mean, I think every institution over time develops corruption, m mission drift, all sorts of things. And, and, and something like the police need to be constantly examined. And I agree with you. Insofar as we do seem to have a, a problem with, with racism and in, in some cases bad apples, we need to be very vigilant about punishing it. But this notion that the entire criminal justice system is actually persecuting African-Americans, where in fact... The criminal justice system is what protects the vast majority of African-Americans from unbelievable violence and fear and terror mm. in their own neighborhoods. And I don't, you know, I don't live that far away from these neighborhoods. Since BLM, I don't feel that much, much less safe in Washington, D.C., even though little things like you, you can't leave your bike outside, theft is 
way up and all those little things of insecurity on the street. But a few blocks from me, there were children being shot dead. Children in drive-by shootings in backyards because these criminals have decided and believe that they have essentially, quote-unquote, a license to kill because the authorities have told them, you know, given the circumstances, you do. And they don't quite say that. Right. So you, so you think I, actually, by the way, I, in California, the voters are going to try and reverse some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so confident that there's a backlash. I'm now starting to worry that we won't make, you know, that the antithesis won't yield a synthesis and that we'll just right. go back to an earlier model. I mean, I the irony to your point, I don't think we should go back to the older psychiatric hospitals. I do think mentally ill people do better and they say they prefer. I mean, they almost all of them say they prefer smaller scale residential care. I mean, of course they do. You know, I'm very simple. There's a sweet movie that came out a couple of years ago called Minari about a Korean family that starts a farm in the south of the United States in the 80s. And there's a character with pretty serious mental illness in it who manages to kind of be participate in farming life and community life, even though he's clearly got some serious, he goes into psychotic episodes frequently. To the extent to which you can do that as a society, that's great. Absolutely. And I mean, I also support, I think that I, I am sympathetic to the idea that police are not the only way to prevent homicide. I think that there are other ways to prevent homicides. I think there's all sorts of great ways to do it. But what's so striking when you read these histories is how quickly the left itself abandons them and doesn't use them. I mean, the obvious thing to do if you're going to let people out of jail before their trial, and there's and we do keep people in jail for a really long time, and it's very disruptive. The obvious thing to do is attach electronic monitoring to them, have them be on probation, keep a close eye on them. But the, that's not what these prosecutors are doing. You know, that, that's what I think is the tell is that they're not actually embracing reformist measures. They're embracing kind of D measures, defund, de-incarcerate, and frankly, demonize the system. And that's absolutely demoralizing to continue with the theme and, and detrimental to these societies. It's completely... Well, to return to rather brutal police tactics to beat people out yes. of their encampments or return to mass institutionalization of people on dubious grounds is not the answer. Some combination of aggressive intervention in these encampments, ensuring some way in which they can get to shelter and treatment, clear advocacy of Zero tolerance of theft, it seems to me. More policing and better policing, which is what the majority of African-Americans actually want and say they want. That is a synthesis, it seems to me, that is both compassionate and realistic and, and compatible with sustaining a liberal society, which, which, which allows dignity for the mentally unwell, which is a serious, serious question. And I agree with you. I think we should have, we can and should have, alongside the police, not as a replacement for the police, but alongside the police, serious armies of psychologists, social welfare people who can go in and help treat mental illness proactively. My, my major concern, to be honest with you, is, is methamphetamine because unlike previous drugs, these, are, these have been honed and honed and honed until they are incredibly powerful, which means that they're basically impossible to prevent because 
only a few grains can get you high. Only, you know, you can easily transport this around. You can easily hide it and it's everywhere. And meth, the new meth that Sam Quinones was pointing out on this very show is, is, is no longer dependent on ephedrine. And the reason you're having to sign, a, show your passport to get a Sudafed is, is at this point irrelevant. They're creating all this from scratch. And I've watched people go mad on this. And the, the only people I know in my peer group who have ended up homeless are people on meth, gay men on meth in particular. The number of middle class, otherwise previously functioning gay men who have dabbled in this drug are on a fast slide towards homelessness and death. And I've seen it with my own bare eyes. What's amazing to me in my own just anecdotal experience is how the authorities refuse, refuse to really get tough with anybody. They, they make excuses and excuses. They, they let people, I mean, I know one meth user who's been just unbelievably and outrageously harassing his ex. He's not in control of himself. He's making other people's lives in absolute misery. He's tying up the criminal justice system. He isn't paying rent, and he and, they, and the, the, the you know he's not going to leave. This is a really frightening scenario for a lot of people. And and the fact is that this drug is not like, oh, let's do a little coke or let's do a little whatever. Or let's 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 do some MDMA at a party. That's it's not that. It is an almost instant horrifying addiction that I haven't seen the likes of before. So how do we? How do we capture that? I mean, at some point, you've also got to have a, a holistic solution to this in which, in which life in modern America has meaning and structure in ways that we've lost, right? I mean, that's, but even then, the amazing ability of drugs to win the drug war every single time is what strikes me. Yeah, I mean, what gives me hope is that they did win in, in Europe. They didn't stop the flow of drugs, but in five cities where they had open drug scenes and, and broader addiction problems, they did make significant headway. So we at the beginning of the conversation, we mentioned, are there some cases where some addicts should just be given some heroin, for example, because they just can't seem to quit? The answer is yes, that might be okay. In the, in, I, I found out, some of the progressives want to tell you, that that number in the Netherlands is fewer than 150 people total. They have, about, they have about 400 or 500 people total that use those safe injection sites. They're trying to get people off addiction. They have personalized plans. I think we do need a new institution for California. I think it's a cost savings measure so that people can be treated where the land is cheap. They don't, not everybody needs to be treated in San Francisco. If you're an addict, you come to San Francisco to be on the open drug scene. You might get 90 days in the Central Valley where it's a lot cheaper to, to kick your habit and get rehab. Meth, you're right. It's a little bit trickier than um, opioids. There's not really a good medical replacement. On the other hand, we know that it's a highly reward-sensitive drug. So people need to have some kind of rewards for, for continuing to make progress on their personal plans. There's now some experiments with using money, although we're not going to, we've already, the science is already there. We know it works. We know it's the only thing that works. So I think the well, challenge giving people money to quit drugs, that What's that? giving people money to quit drugs works. It's really the money <laughs> or housing or That's some other. Way. Yeah, it works everywhere. And it works along the psychological principles of operant conditioning, which used to be known as behaviorism. But basically, we're very reward sensitive and addicts are very are unusually reward sensitive. So it does work. But it, I think it does require I think this is the part for the, the work for conservatives is that it does require some new institution to deal with this. I'm calling it CalPsych. 
I do think it's a place of significant bipartisan agreement. It's the one place where I find my radical left critics, not all of them, some of them kind of go, yeah, we do need something more like that. It's a big government program, so liberals intuitively are in favor of it. But I, at the end of San Francisco, I interviewed kind of the leading voices on the right to basically show that there was pretty significant support for this on the right as well. Most people understand that people with schizophrenia are not out there shopping for for mental health care insurance. They're not out there shopping for providers. This is not something that is amenable to free market libertarian solutions. It's something that particularly for for schizophrenics, but people with severe mental illness, but really addiction at the levels that you're describing of fentanyl and meth, which I totally agree with. That's a serious mental illness. I mean, addiction means the root Latin word for addiction, addictus, means to enslave, to be enslaved. So the language of chemical slavery is completely accurate. It's not to say that people can't escape it. You can. But we've known for 150 years since the the post-Civil War in the United States that opioid addicts require intervention, that alcohol addicts require intervention. If you're lucky, you get it from your family and your family's successful. But like you said, meth is such a potent drug. It makes the people taking it feel like they're superheroes in some cosmic drama that they and then they become psychotic. Um, and on opioids, truly, they just it's the you know, for addicts, it's all they want. It's all they care about. It requires some intervention. And if families aren't going to do it, then it's going to happen by the society and the state. So let's do it in the most compassionate and efficient way we know how. Whereas currently we have 100,000 deaths a year from fentanyl overdose, which is up from 17,000 20 years ago, which is more deaths from homicide and car accidents, twice as much from homicides and car accidents combined. I mean, it's a shocking number. It's a, it should be a tier one national news issue and it's not. I'm I happy to see it getting a little more attention, but it's a, it's a national shame. I agree with you, Michael. I am most grateful for the time you've taken and and to flesh some of these arguments out. I apologize if I vented a little bit. I, I, I'm beginning to feel quite Not angry about a lot of this stuff. And, and I do think it's important to find some kind of synthesis here that, that, does not, that, that is both compassionate, understands the really awful plight of many people with mental illness and certainly with addiction, but also in recognizing that is not going to enable it and not going to enable it to destroy a way of life in cities, not enable it to, to result in even more of this occurring and, and the deaths that are occurring as, as a function of it, let alone, I think this is what is often, we talk about 100,000 deaths. What we don't talk about is that of those 100,000, there are 100,000 families, friends, networks of people around that person mm. who have been devastated by this, psychologically devastated. This is not just a question for people who have become addicted. It is also a question of the enormous toll this is taking on people's psychological well-being, their ability to work, their ability to function. There is nothing more distressing than watching someone you love slowly disappear into one of these homeless camps mm. with no possibility of rescuing them. So I, I'm just praying we, we, we have some way forward on this. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I recommend your book, San Francisco. S sorry, San Francisco. Thank I'm you. sure that title will uh, help gin up sales for conservatives, but I I, in some ways I wish, because I, mean, I think the book is more sophisticated than that. It's more nuanced than that. And, and I'm worried you're going to get swallowed up by sort of Fox News 
braggadocia, which will in some ways obscure some of the more important nuances here. But I, I guess San Francisco is sicko is a decent <laughs> title as any. I wish I wish you'd come up with something a little better. But anyway, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thanks very much. Good Andrew. luck on everything. A true pleasure. Especially Long time fan. Thanks thank you so much, so much Michael. Let's be good. Thank you.